Hi, I'm Vivian. I'm the Assistant Minister at St Mark's. As we've heard in our reading today, Jesus likens the Kingdom of God to a massive fishing net that catches all kinds of fish. Now, I know that some of you might relate with me here on this, and I'm just going to put this out there. I hate fishing. <laughs> I hate dealing with bait. I hate the idea of the fish flipping and flapping when they get pulled out of the water, and I hate the idea of killing my catch. <laughs> Add to that the often freezing cold winds and being out in the elements for how many hours on end. No, no thanks, definitely not my thing. And I suspect some of the more genteel among us would agree with me on this, and I've probably also kind of um, really got some of you excited, um, for those of you who are really longing to be able to get out there uh, once restrictions further ease and get back into some fishing. But whether you don't like fishing or whether you do, it's not too hard to picture um, what Jesus is talking about here. This big, massive net catching all kinds of fish being hauled up out of the water and then the good fish being put into baskets and the bad fish being the, the fish that, you know, can't be eaten and that aren't really worth anything being thrown away. If the kingdom of God is like this net, what does this mean? Well, firstly, I just want to contextualise this a little bit because for environmentally conscious people like myself, these massive fishing nets that are used in commercial fishing today actually have quite a negative connotation. We might see them as quite detrimental to our ocean ecosystems and we might see them as symbols of the overfishing of our waters and as symbols of the overconsumption of the human race. Also, some of us might not really like the idea of being caught in something against their will. But I think Jesus wants to think of this net in this parable in a different way. In Jesus' time, these um, nets would have symbolised the means of making an efficient and abundant catch. They were helpful tools for the fishing trade. And if Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a huge fishing net, then what are the positive allusions to the kingdom of God that he's making? I think he's wanting us to see it as a net of God's good and positive purposes, as a net of grace, a net of love, a net that calls us up into life maybe even literally like a safety net, which rescues us out of the sea of sin, a net that rescues us out of the chaos of disorder and evil and anything that leads towards death. Now we notice that this net catches all kinds of fish or all kinds of people. This word in Greek is literally all races of people and it means all nationalities, all classes, all types of categories of people. So we see that this net doesn't discriminate. God's kingdom doesn't discriminate. God's grace is available to all and God's kingdom is open to all. It's inclusive, it's welcoming, it's there to catch everything and anyone. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, this ties into one of his key themes about the expanding inclusivity of God's kingdom beyond the Jewish people, of God's kingdom expanding beyond the confines of race, of class, of language and nation, and including everyone in the whole world. For us, we might think of it as the kingdom and the gospel touching all sorts of different people, all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of life experiences. And kind of like the seed that the sower threw out across all different types of soils. We heard about that a couple of weeks ago and that we talked about that from earlier on in this chapter. So too, God's net, God's work in this world goes out and calls up anyone and everyone into life. Anyone is welcome in God's kingdom. Anyone can belong in God's kingdom. But the parable doesn't stop here. While all kinds of people are invited into God's kingdom, we see that not everyone will be chosen for eternal life in this kingdom. Later in Matthew, in chapter 22, Jesus says many are invited, but few are chosen. Here in this parable, we read that once the net has caught all these kinds of fish, the net is then pulled up and the fish are then separated according to whether they are bad or good, whether they are wicked or righteous. What does Jesus mean here? What does he mean by this language of righteousness? And wickedness. Well, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about the righteous as those who have realized their own shortcomings and are relying on God's mercy. Because of this, they're accepted by God. They're the children, the little ones, who know that they have no merit of their own, but through faith have become children of God. The evil, on the other hand, are those who haven't acknowledged their need for God's mercy. They haven't acknowledged their need for Jesus. They haven't acknowledged their sin. They haven't repented or sought forgiveness. As Christians, we believe that when we see our sin for what it is, when we realise the ways that we've distorted what's good and right, the ways we step over the lines of morality, the ways we put other things above God, when we realise we need Jesus and believe that he took on our sin and died on the cross so that we might be forgiven and receive new life with him, when we believe these things, something incredible happens inside of us. The sin is washed away and we're given a new status as righteous sons and daughters of the King. Theologically, this is called imputed righteousness. When we trust in Jesus, we are united in him so that our sins become his and his righteousness becomes ours. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made the only one who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we who did not know righteousness might become the righteousness of God through our union with him. This is salvation by grace 
through faith. Or as Ephesians puts it in chapter 2 verse 5, even when we were dead and doomed in our many sins, even when we were lost in the sea of sin and the ocean of evil, he united us into the very life of Christ and saved us by his wonderful grace. Can you see that this is the net of salvation? This is the work of God in our world in this age. This is the era of grace, an era of invitation and opportunity to respond to his call of grace and to life in union with Jesus Christ. The question then that this parable forces us to consider is are we willing to be caught up in God's kingdom or are we going to resist it? Because the choice has to be made. Because we can resist the kingdom in so many ways, can't we? Maybe thinking that if we accept the invitation to life with Jesus, we'll lose our freedoms, our freedoms to do what we want. Or we'll lose a sense of control over our lives. Some people know that they'll have to give up their vices or addictions and that's just too hard, too confronting. Or maybe because we've been so hurt through relationships, we're not sure about the nature of Jesus' love. We might even doubt that life with Jesus is actually safe. We might doubt that we can fully trust him. Later on in Matthew, I think Jesus gives us another angle to help us understand what the parable of the net means. Listen to what he says in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, How often I've ate to embrace you, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you wouldn't let me. You weren't willing We're meant to see this net as Jesus' arms of embrace, his arms of love drawing us to himself, where we're protected and safe under his wings. When I was a little girl, probably around the age of five and six, I remember visiting my nana and grandpa with my family, um, which we'd often do, and they lived on a farm. And I remember one time my grandpa asking if I'd like a cuddle on his lap. And I distinctly remember feeling that I didn't want to let him cuddle me. I was wary because, you know, he often came across as so stern and so grumpy. And, you know, my dad had told us of how strict he was when he was a kid growing up. And I also didn't like his beard. <laughs> He had a bushy beard and when I got close, he'd deliberately use his beard to prickle my cheeks and I really didn't like it. So I had my reasons for wanting to keep my distance. 
simple reasons for a little girl, but perfectly valid nonetheless. And I was resistant to his affection from that point on. But God's embrace never makes us uncomfortable. It's always perfectly safe. Yes, his love and his grace demands our repentance, but that will never be to our detriment. It's always for our good and for the good of those around us. His love doesn't have one bit of manipulation or exploitation or abuse or betrayal or abandonment about it. His love always protects. His love always works for our good. There's a song that I love called Pieces and I want to read some of the lyrics to you. It says, You don't give yourself in pieces. Your love's not fractured. It's not a troubled mind. It's not anxious. It's not the restless kind. Your love's not passive. It's never disengaged. It's always present. Your love keeps its promises. It keeps its word. It honours what's sacred because its vows are good. Your love's not broken. It's not insecure. Your love's not selfish. Your love is pure. But Viv, you might say, when I let someone love me, I know I'm not fully my own person anymore. When I let someone in, I have a bond, I have a tie to another such that my life is no longer fully my own. And yeah, this is true, isn't it? Love demands a willing giving up of one's independence for the sake of the relationship. But I like what Timothy Keller points out, that if the giving up and surrendering of oneself is only one way, then the relationship becomes exploitative. But if both persons are willing and mutually sacrificing their autonomy, their right to independence and freedom, then there's a liberation and a safety that's experienced. And out of their mutual willingness to sacrifice their individual freedoms is a newfound freedom in unity and oneness. So how can we trust Jesus' love though? How do we know that we can trust his love? Because we know that Jesus has given up his freedom for us. He gave up his glory and his immortality when he became human and came to live on earth with us. And he gave up joy and light and his very life in his death on the cross for us. We know that we can trust Jesus' love because he pursued our life at the cost of trauma that he need not have suffered. 
Deborah Van Doysen Hunsinger. She's a professor of um, pastoral theology at Princeton Theological Seminary. She says it like this. If God in Jesus Christ descends into the worst hell imaginable in order to deliver us from the hells we inflict upon one another, then such a God is worthy of our trust. Friends, Jesus' love is safe. This net of his kingdom is safe. You can surrender to its pull. You can allow God to draw you up in his arms of embrace. And you can nestle in for the cuddle. And when you do, and with whatever sacrifices of self that you make, you'll discover infinite and true liberation. You'll discover a worth and a security beyond compare. And you'll discover that you're more fully yourself than you were on your own. Because being caught up in God's love and grace, being caught up in this net of love and grace, is actually the safest place we could ever be. So are you willing to be loved? Will you let Jesus wrap his arms of love around you and allow yourself to be embraced by God himself? As we close this series on these parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, I want to point us back to Jesus' words at the end of this section in this chapter, where he says, Therefore every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. He's saying that if you've understood these ideas about God's kingdom and you consider yourself now a disciple of this kingdom, then there's something distinct about you. Unlike the Jewish religious leaders at the time who had missed the significance of Jesus as the locus of God's kingdom, who had closed themselves off from and who had resisted God's work in the world through Jesus, disciples of the kingdom have grasped and received this new treasure of Jesus. Because of this, they're not only open to, but also become vessels of the new, inclusive, effectual and living nature of God's kingdom. And so this is like the ongoing invitation of these parables of the kingdom of God. Those of us who are willing to be loved by God through Jesus Christ, who have received the seed of his word, who have found the pearl of great price and are caught up in his net of grace, we become then extensions of the work of the kingdom. In our union with Jesus, we're now united to how he's at work in the world. We become the extension of his arms of embrace that lovingly draws anyone and everyone to God. We become sowers that scatter the seeds of the gospel among the people around us. We become like the yeast working its way 
through the world to enliven it and to transform it. We have new treasures as well as old to point the world to the love of God. And not only then do we find our worth, our security, our identity, our life, our growth and our treasure in the kingdom of God, but also the dignity of such a divine purpose and calling to participate with God's activity and presence in the world. So let me ask you again, are you willing to be caught up in God's kingdom? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that your love is so deep and wide, that you welcome all sorts of people and even sinners like us to belong with you in your kingdom. Help us to know how your love is so trustworthy and safe so that we no longer resist your embrace but willingly surrender to the call of your grace which calls us up into true life and freedom with you. Amen.